This is an ABC podcast. How good is Australia? Wishful thinking of the Labor Party. The courts have done their job. They've rendered their verdict. Revenge is best served through a Bledisloe Cup. A shameful and pathetic attempt. That is such a bubble question. I'm just going to leave that one in the bubble. Hello there, I'm Patricia Carvellis from RN Drive. And I'm Fran Kelly from RN Breakfast or Insiders or where am I from now, PK? I'm you're from Planet clear. Earth. You're Planet one of the ABC. best journos in our country and you're from the ABC. And you are the co-host of the Party Room podcast and that's where people are right now. Can I say, PK, it is fabulous to be back. It's great to be reunited, that's right. Well, Fran, you had a good break? I had a good break, had a bit of a family holiday lounging around a pool in Bali, which I must recommend to anybody if you get the chance. But you come back and what do you know? The news hasn't stopped, PK. There's plenty going on. And particularly on the foreign policy front at the moment, all of it pretty contentious, I would say. It's incredibly contentious. So this is all in the wake of the Pacific Islands Forum. It really did generate a lot of heat and uh, I said that on purpose, of course, because uh, the conversation was all about climate change, yes, and Australia came with a a plan that was, well, quite unsatisfactory to many Pacific leaders. Uh, Australia did try to tone down the language around coal and around climate change. And there's been a bit of a fallout from all of that, which I think is quite significant. Tuvalu's Prime Minister, Enele Sopawanga, responded by saying he he wouldn't hesitate to pull his country out of Australia's seasonal workers program because the Deputy Prime Minister, Michael McCormack, was caught um, in a Guardian video. I mean, they got the footage of it and they published it where he said lots of things. You've got to watch the whole thing for the context. But, you know, he was saying he gets a bit sick of complaints from people, Pacific Island leaders, given Australia, you know, has this program where they come and pick fruit. So that was quite a contentious thing to say at the end of what was already probably a very difficult forum for Australia. He said he'd pull his uh, workers out. So Mm. if there wasn't mutual respect between the two countries, the Morrison government, it's fair to say, has been really mopping up after this forum. And we're going to talk about the mop up and the biggest elephant in the room. We've been talking about this elephant for a few podcasts now, which is China. And our guest today is Chris Yulman from Channel 9. And I think he's a bit of a China expert, really, in the politics and, and the national security issues. So he's quite a good guest for these themes. And China looms, you know, over so many fronts. And that's only going to increase, not decrease, in terms of the strategic importance or complex economic and strategic relationship we have with China and how to work it out. And I think we've seen this week the federal government's still trying to get its line and length on the relationship. And China is, dare I say, loving it. I mean, we've got these comments reported um, this week from a Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs official accusing Australia of acting like a, quote, condescending master of Pacific Island nations. So he's jumping on the criticism from PNG Prime Minister Frank Bainimarama and others that you mentioned there of Australia. So they are not letting this slip if they can help it. But like I said, the federal government is trying to be reassuring. It's trying to have a united and clear line on China. The Foreign Minister, Maurice Payne, had another go when she was talking to you this week. I think members of parliament are entitled, of course, to contribute to these conversations. And one of the uh, fundamental aspects of Australia's free and open democracy, I might remind those who would seek to curtail it, is that uh, we enjoy this as a privilege and a right in our country and uh, we as a government would most certainly seek to preserve the opportunity for those sorts of contributions to be made. 
Yeah, I thought that was a really fascinating contribution. This comes after Simon Birmingham, the Trade Minister, set really a test for MPs like Andrew Hastie and others who are speaking out about the rise of China, saying that you know before you speak, you've got to think about the national consequences of that decision, you know, how it affects Australia's national interest. And I thought it was quite a different line from Maurice Payne, mm. essentially saying, realising, I think, that there is genuine concern in the coalition and actually across politics, let's be honest, it's not just in the government, it's also in the Labor Party, about the rise of China, how to manage this uh, and reconfigure this as well. And this was the foreign minister saying, well, we're not going to shut you down. We understand these concerns and also very pointed comments around being a democracy. And I think that's important. Who's not a democracy. Well, but it's important if if we are the democracy in this relationship, there's us and there's China, which is not democratic, it's difficult for us to be shutting down the democratic principles, which of course allow elected politicians to have a say and to voice the concerns that they're hearing from their constituents. That's part of the thing of democracy, right? So it's what separates us that people can speak up and speak out. So it's difficult for the government to be closing people down on this. And there is a general feeling across the parliament. Um, we, I noticed that Centre Alliance Senator Rex Patrick is now calling for the Senate to have a committee on China. So there is a call for more discussion. Penny Wong, who's the Shadow Foreign Affairs Minister, also raised this idea of joint briefings from a couple of departments for MPs to really manage and lead this relationship on these China-related issues. Maurice Payne rejected that and said that's not necessary because we have lots of committees in Parliament that already do that, but also encouraging that people or saying that people have a right to speak out. Look, the truth is, Fran, you know this, I know this, and I think the country now knows this. This is just the beginning of this conversation. Hmm. We're going to hear more of it. Dave Sharma came out this week publicly on the record in an interview with me to back Andrew Hastie's views and to explain them really articulately about why he thinks this comparison to Germany during World War II is relevant, the rise of Germany, because he says it's about the rise of a superpower and how to manage that in a changing environment. So, you know, this is really going to, I think, overshadow politics a lot. We can talk about it a bit more with Chris Yulman in a moment. But this week really is very much focused again on foreign policy because the Prime Minister's going to be travelling overseas again, isn't he? That's right. So the Prime Minister's in Vietnam. He's going to be talking trade. He's going to be, it's a, it's a growing middle class there in Vietnam. So there's a lot of opportunities for exchange with Australia. We have close ties, obviously. Our universities are there. We have close ties with them. Also strategically, because the Indo-Pacific countries like Vietnam and others are also dealing with their security challenges with China in the South China. China Sea, but Belt and Road money is coming in too to this region. So Australia really needs to be on its toes there and have the relationships up to scratch. So there's all of that going on. There's also the announcement by the Prime Minister that Australia will contribute, join the US in this multinational freedom of navigation exercise in the Straits of Hormuz. That's another huge story, which we'll discuss with Chris Hulman shortly. But amidst all of this foreign focus, there's also a major event back home, which is that Federal Cabinet has also signed off this week on the religious discrimination legislation, finally. And if you can believe the Attorney-General, and why wouldn't you, PK, it's going to be, in a sense, much ado about nothing. But really, do you think that's going to slip through? Yeah, look, it's fascinating the way that this will play out. Yes, he's gone, he says, for a conservative approach. Uh, The laws will protect people from being discriminated against but will not 
give them a licence to discriminate against other people. He actually said, let's give you the quotes, he said the draft bill will deliver a Religious Discrimination Act that reflects other anti-discrimination laws, such as those covering age, race and disability. And then he went on to use that thing saying his reforms would act as a shield against discrimination, not a sword, allowing religious people to discriminate. So that gives us the sense that it's going to be very contained legislation and not enshrining the positive right to discriminate um, for religious groups that some within the coalition and outside have been clamouring for. That's right. So people inside the coalition won't be happy. We know some already, uh, Conchetta Ferravanti-Wells, Barnaby Joyce, uh, who wanted it to go further. The extent to which they raise public objections after the draft bill is released? Because at this stage, what we know is that Cabinet has signed off on the framework. We have not seen the draft bill yet. That will be interesting to watch because I think that's an issue around authority for the Prime Minister as well. Here we have Scott Morrison, who we know is actually a religious man, but who has gone for a more conservative reading of how to do this, how to reform this area. Whether they, you know, really decide to cause trouble or fall into line, I think it will be really interesting, don't you? Just, yeah, because... Here we go again. Yeah, GK. that's what I'm sort of kind of going to. Are we going to see... I think the difference will be exactly as you spelled it out, that Scott Morrison is not Malcolm Turnbull. They're not suspicious of him on these values issues as they were of Malcolm Turnbull. He is a publicly very spiritual, religious man, so therefore they trust he instinctively will be more in their corner. But the uh, the real clincher is that he has this authority of this election win, which no matter how many times others tell you otherwise, it was unexpected. It might have been a miracle, but it was a win that almost everybody in that party room wasn't banking on, wasn't planning on. So Scott Morrison comes with a lot of authority. He certainly does. Look, before we bring in Chris Yulman, I wanted to quickly go to the Prime Minister's response to Cardinal George Pell and the Victorian Court of Appeal dismissing his appeal against his uh, historical child sex abuse convictions. So he's back in jail now. Most people would be across this story, one of the biggest stories in the world, really. Scott Morrison was asked, of course, when the decision was handed down on Wednesday, and he said his sympathies were with the victims of child sexual abuse and that people should be reaching out to the victims. Of course, when a big decision like this is made, when this is in the headlines, this is really a triggering thing for many people who are survivors of what is a disturbing and horrible part of people's history and part of our national history now. And I thought the tone he got was, well, he struck the right tone. And it just, I don't know, I just can't help but compare it to, you know, Tony Abbott, John Howard providing really public support throughout this process to George Pell. But the Prime Minister has really taken a very different line on this. The courts have done their job. They've rendered their verdict. And that's the system of justice in this country, and that must be respected. And of course, my understanding is that this would result in the stripping of the honours that are decided externally to the government. That is a process that is done independently, and, and that course will now follow. Yeah, I agree with you. I think the PM did strike a very good tone here. His sympathies were with the victims, which is where they should be, given the courts have ruled now not once but twice. Um, and then he suggested there would be action, which, of course, is, we're hearing from victims around the world now clamouring for the Vatican to take some kind of action against George Pell, but they will not do it yet until the, the legal processes are all completely wound up. The truth is honours won't be stripped from George Pell until all avenues of appeal have been exhausted. The Governor General General came out and said that that that's the process. It was a general comment rather than a specific one. But I think the signalling from the Prime Minister was absolutely spot on. 
Chris Yulman, Nine News political editor. Welcome to the party room. PK, great to be with you, Fran. Chris, Chris, for a long time now, you've been reporting and commenting on China. And this week, that's very front and centre again, and we had the spotlight shining on the university sector, where not only are uni budgets short up by a huge number of Chinese students, overseas students, but Chinese students in particular in our unis, but also a growing investment by China in research in our unis. So the government called in security and cyber experts and sat down with uni chiefs and others for a heart-to-heart. How did that go? What's the issue here? What are the red lines, if you like? Yeah, and the red lines are what universities want to see drawn. So on one front, it is where can we engage in research and development with Chinese universities? And look, China is the Voldemort of Australian foreign policy, right? So we're always talking around and not to the issue of China because the government doesn't want to create any unnecessary fights and doesn't usually succeed in doing that. But the issue is China what they engage in in terms of what would be dual-use technologies, things that could be used for military use as well as for civilian use is the real concern at the moment. Universities quite rightly say, look, you've given us no guidance on this. So there's a conversation going on with the security agencies about that. And from what I gather, it's been quite positive. On the other side of things, we've seen some quite massive cyber attacks, particularly on the Australian National University. They've been working with the Australian Signals Director to try and do something about that. And as I understand, in one meeting, Brian Smith, the Vice-Chancellor from the ANU, gave quite a chilling presentation to the crowd of Vice-Chancellors. So, And then there's the third issue, which is, are they hugely over-reliant on foreign students? And of that cohort, the biggest group is Chinese mm. uh, nationals. So they've got a range of issues across a lot of fronts, and it's really all about risk management. In terms of the funding thing, and a number of vice-chancellors have pointed this out, Peter Vargese is the chancellor of one of the Queensland universities, and he's pointed this out in no uncertain terms, is the fact that the universities, I think, themselves admit they are hugely reliant, if not over-reliant, on the money coming in from foreign students, the money paid, full-fee-paying students these people are, um, because federal government funding has been cut back considerably since uh, the 90s. There's been a major cut, I think more than 40% cut of university budgets. That's been made up by foreign students. Is it good enough now for the government to say to the unis, get your house in order? What do you think? Uh, The government will say, yes, it is. And they will point particularly to the group of eight and say, you've got $22 billion worth of investment in those eight universities. Plus, you've got an enormous amount of cash in the bank. So you're not actually as bad off as you claim to be. But I think there is a fair argument there that Peter Varghese is making. And, you know, he's very well positioned to make this Mm. argument. Of course, he was formerly head of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, so he's well aware of all of the issues, but he's raising the very real issue about, you know, if you want good universities, the government has to be prepared to pay for them. And I think across a whole range of fronts with the things that the Australian government is attempting to do, what it does demand of them is they put more cash up you know, even in the Pacific step up. I mean, I think there's a a whole lot more that could be done there, but it does demand more cash and they're desperately defending constantly a budget surplus, which they absolutely must have. Well, I think that there are other calls on the public purse which make that not as necessary as they would make out. And Chris, pro-Hong Kong protests have been going on across Australia, really, but let's talk specifically about Australian university campuses here because we already are. Now, pro-Beijing counter-protests have occurred and this has become, well, there have been some massive flashpoints really. What advice is the government considering around this and who's behind this kind of activity? I mean, we've seen some very ugly scenes. 
We have, but let's again remember that we are a democracy and so the mainland Chinese students, if you like, have every right to make their protest and their voice heard. They've got a very different view to the pro-Hong Kong students. We've been in this circumstance before. We're a multicultural society. Remember back in the hideous era of what we'd call the Yugoslav Wars, you know, there were very deep divisions inside Australia about the, the way that things lined up in the Croatian and Serbian communities, for example. So this is not a new problem for Australia. What's different on the university front at the moment is that when it comes to the Chinese cohort of students, particularly those who since you know Tiananmen Square have undergone hugely nationalistic education programs, they do tend to be, it would appear, very intolerant of any other point of view and that's being expressed on campuses. Again, it's a management issue for the universities. Don't want to ban students from particular countries or or single them out, but there is an issue there. And the other issue we have, of course, is that the Chinese consulates and embassies tend to be quite involved in what's going on with their student cohort and they have education officers. I think that's the issue. I think that's the issue, Chris, because it's for the universities to manage the protests that go on on campuses and to make sure that people are, you know, free to express their views safely and all of that. And universities need to absolutely manage that in terms of freedom of speech, this whole freedom of speech debate. But when there are cases proven, and you've looked at this and we've all heard stories of families, of those students protesting against the national position of the Chinese government, of their families back home being harassed, called in for questioning, that sort of thing, then it becomes an issue for our security agencies, doesn't it, for our police and, and law and order and security agencies to deal with. And it must be dealt with. It can't. We can't be having kids on our campuses frightened to speak out for fear of what might happen off campus. And it's common. By the yeah. way, I know it's happened to journalists. It's happened to journalists in the ABC of Chinese background. So that's how close to home it gets. And sometimes we can't tell those stories. And I haven't been able to tell that particular story because that person fears for her family in China. Now, this is a real thing. And I've been attempting since 2015 to say, look, the world is changing. China is rising as a power. It has a very different view about the way the world should be run. And by the way, it sees the Chinese diaspora as part of China. They refer to it as the overseas Chinese. And they expect there'll be fealty to the Chinese Communist Party. So we are going to live in a very different world Mm. and we need to draw some boundaries with China where we essentially say the same principle applies that you would like to apply in your homeland. That's non-interference in our domestic affairs. And right now, the Chinese Communist Party is deeply invested across a whole range of fronts in interfering inside Australia. Yes, and I think you said it right. It's for the agencies, for the governments, for the institutions to draw the boundaries. That's why I get disgruntled with some of the debate going on, because it is within our gift to draw these boundaries. We just need to sort out what these so-called red lines are and stand to them, I think. Um, But China doesn't make that easy, as you say, and it pushes back and it causes trouble where it can. You know, it's not the only country diplomatically to do that when it's in its own interest. And we've seen that again this week um, in the wake of the Pacific Island Forum, where the government really copped a bit of a shellacking from some of the Pacific Island leaders. Well, China's weighed in now, one of its foreign ministry people giving some free and frank advice to the Australian government, calling them, you know, acting like a condescending master of Pacific Island nations. So this issue, uh, the issues that arose in Australia's behaviour or tone, if you like, at the Pacific Island Forum continues to cause some negative fallout for the Morrison government.
Yeah, and it, look, the fault is with Australia. The, the way I've, I see this is that China will do what China will do and, and China will behave as a superpower does and that it will please itself and the rest of us will have to get on with our own game. We have to play a smart one, though. And what's happened in the Pacific is not just the Morrison government, but Australian governments over 30 years have dropped the ball. In our own backyard, the place that we should have been more concerned about than anywhere else, we have opened up an opportunity for China to move in. Are we surprised now that that's happening? That's our fault. We are belatedly trying to fix that. And part of the problem that we've got there is the way we've played our domestic politics when it comes to the politics of climate change has been received in the Pacific as us not caring about their major concern. Well, that's a big issue and we need to address the way we deal with that domestically and in our backyard. And Chris, there's this other issue that's been a big theme this week. The government, now we have confirmed, I interviewed Maurice Payne, the foreign minister, and she confirmed there is an open discussion now with Papua New Guinea about money going there to deal with infrastructure and their budget issues. Now, it was first reported that they wanted $1.5 billion. Uh, She says, this is Maurice Payne, that the request is not for $1.5 billion, but clearly there is a request to deal with uh, what is a debt issue for PNG. And clearly Australia is in talks. They're going to be in talks in the next couple of days over the weekend at a PNG meeting on this issue. Is that where Australia is going to be jumping in to try and, you know, take that role rather than PNG turning to China, which was also on the agenda? Yeah, because the alternative was that they were talking about the possibility that PNG may refinance its entire budget deficit with Chinese money. Now, we saw what's happened elsewhere in the world with that with Sri Lanka. When they couldn't pay it back, the Chinese took a port. Uh, imagine if Port Moresby was suddenly home to uh, some part of the Chinese fleet, which is absolutely something. Or Manus Island. Want, or Manus Island or, or anywhere else. And this is why, you know, I have been accused of being obsessed about China. No. Yes, <laughs> I am obsessed about it because this is the weather in which we will be operating and the hardest thing Australian governments are going to have to do from now on is navigate this relationship between our major Ally, which is a strategic rival of our key trading partner. It doesn't get harder than that. We have never faced this circumstance before. Given that challenge to the government to focus on this and get this right, what about then the Prime Minister's announcement this week that Australia will now join US-led forces to protect international shipping through the Straits of Hormuz in the Persian Gulf? Um, It's a very limited contribution, barely a contribution really, one warship, one aircraft, 200 people all up. Modest, meaningful and time limited is how the PM described it. Others though, um, including former Head of Army Peter Lay, are warning of mission creep and others still say... Why are we doing this when our focus clearly needs to be on our region? And that's a brilliant and perfectly acceptable question and I understand why they say that because we should not be involved again in some mission in the Middle East. And remember, the Yanks do not need our ships or our planes or our people. They want our flag to go and join them on this mission. And let's not forget in this part of the world at this particular time, the United States has caused this problem with Iran. There was a deal, an imperfect deal, to try and make sure that they didn't extend their nuclear ambitions. It took forever to thrash out. Uh, It was settled. A bad deal is better than no deal. The United States unilaterally withdrew from it and then put maximum pressure on Iran to cripple its economy and to try and bring down its regime. And guess what? 
it lashes out. So what happens when push comes to shove in the Straits of Hormuz and an Australian ship is involved and just say there is an exchange of fire, for example? What does that yeah. mean? And it's hard to follow. I mean, I still find it hard to follow the logic of putting more military hardware and personnel into the straits, helping to de-escalate the tensions. I'm still at odds with that logic. Yeah, I think that it's an illogical argument. And if everything that we have said is true, if the centre of gravity has shifted to the Asia-Pacific for concerns for Australia, that is where we should apply our effort. Of course. And we should be encouraging our ally to do the same thing. But Australia's talking about our own economic interests, though, here too, and um, obviously fuel security and how it affects us as well. Are you sympathetic to that argument? Iran wants to sell a whole lot of oil. We're not letting it. You know, there are other answers to this. One of the answers would be, and this is where it gets tough, right? So we are dealing, people concentrate a lot on Donald Trump. Yes, we have a huge problem with Donald Trump because of this, and he's a mercurial president. We've got a huge problem with another president who doesn't get enough bad press about how bad he is, and that's Xi Jinping. That, as I say, makes the already difficult task of navigating between these nations even harder, and it's not going to go away. It won't go away when Donald Trump leaves the White House, because there is now a consensus in Washington. I've spoken to people who are from the Democrats and the Republicans. I've spoken to people who are in defence, intelligence and state. I've spoken to some of their business people. They are now all on the same page. They are going to muscle up to China. That creates a huge problem for us. And we need to chart some sort of course, which gives us some level of independence. And occasionally we have to say no to the United States. But of course, the Prime Minister is heading off there shortly for a state dinner. He'll be fated by Donald Trump. And by the way, what happens if at a press conference, which, you know, I can absolutely see this happening, that Donald Trump, despite Scott Morrison saying, you've got to separate these things. We're not part of the US maximum pressure campaign. Mm. If Donald Trump says at a press conference, mm. I'm so glad that my friends from Australia are here who are helping us with our maximum pressure campaign on Iran. What does the Prime Minister say after a statement like that? Uh, I know. Look, there's some analysis that said, you know, that's why the Prime Minister made this announcement here now on domestic grounds so that he wouldn't, you know, there was this talk that he would go to the US and make the announcement that actually that would have uh, put him in a difficult position in case there were more requests or there was more push so that he could confine well, Good it. luck that it doesn't get mentioned there because I'm going and that's the question I'll be asking. Oh, okay. <laughs> You've given them the heads up now, Chris. Keep it to yourself. All doesn't right. matter. <laughs> Let's talk about, just briefly, Alan Jones, powerful broadcaster. There's a hashtag called Sack Alan Jones. Uh, we've got advertisers pulling out of his show after he made very offensive comments about Jacinda Ardern and, you know, there were even more revealed on Media Watch. The New Zealand Prime Minister, though, I've got to play this. She seems unfazed, or at least, how good is this sledge? I understand that he, uh, that he, of course, used to, of course, be closely linked to the Wallabies. So um, let's just say I think that uh, revenge is best served through a Bledisloe Cup. How, Chris, how good was that? For those that don't follow this particular code, and I unfortunately throughout my life have 36 nil after we won in you know, happily in in Western Australia. But go to Eden Park, get smashed. 36 nil. Read it and weep, Alan Jones. I think the New Zealand Prime Minister has played this in the way that it should be played. She's played it with grace and humour, something that's sadly lacking quite often in the Now that's what I call a zinger. Chris, it's great to have you in the party room. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's question time. Thank you to everyone who submitted a question for us. Neil on Twitter has asked... Why can't conservative commentators like Bolt, you mean Andrew Bolt and Devine, accept the outcome of our justice system on Pell? 
Look, oh, have you got the answer to that, Pika? I'd like to know that too. <laughs> okay, well, I'll give you my view. It's complex. What clearly they feel, and they've articulated this in their columns, is that George Pell has become sort of the poster person. I was going to say poster boy. That feels weird. The poster person for a witch hunt against the Catholic Church and that um, he has been denied justice because he is so disliked by so many people who are angry at the Catholic Church. That's what broadly they feel. Now, is there evidence for that? Well, I think that the judicial system has operated really, really robustly throughout this process, trying to ensure that George Powell got a fair trial. And I think that is incredibly important. Everyone deserves a fair trial. And if I can just chip in there, I mean, the the judge in delivering um, his explanation of his uh, sentencing of George Pell, went, Peter Kidd, went to great lengths to say, we need to make sure that this is not George Pell being um, punished for the sins of others. And this, you know, we meet, needed to be very clear through all of this. And this was not what this verdict was about, wasn't it? Didn't he? That's exactly right. But they feel that, that that justice was not presented. And now, if you look at the sort of commentators and what they're saying, the fact that one judge dissented, so it was a two to one um, verdict verdict that essentially kept George Pell now in jail, that has given them more ammunition to say, hey, look at that one dissenting judge and what he's written. Now, there may be a high court challenge. I mean, this goes on. I'm not defending what they say. I believe in our judicial system. But this is where they come from. Can you convince them? I think it's very unlikely. Well, this is where they come from. And I think we call it the pick and stick club. I mean, I think that's what's happening here, that there will be no chink in the conservative block, if you like, that have lined up on issues for a long time. George Pell very much a part of that on a range of issues, you know, from climate change to gay marriage to any number of things over the years. But, you know, we have to have faith in our justice system. And the fact that it was a 2-1 decision, I mean, a lot of high court decisions are made with dissenters on the bench. We don't doubt every decision made. So I think we have to be careful here about, you know, allowing these weaknesses, if you like, to be portrayed as weaknesses in this decision, when in fact this is how the justice system works, has always worked. Not all the decisions are unanimous, but that doesn't mean they don't hold. That's absolutely correct. And of course, you know, this may end up in the High Court. Uh, The High Court has a chance to consider this. I mean, Mm. this is the way that the system works and it should, and it should. All right, on another issue, we've got this other question. What is the retirees tax and why was it of such importance to the election debate? Well, just one thing on that. There's no such thing as a retirees tax. That's how the coalition labelled Labor's changes to franking credits and it became known as the retirees tax, you know. What was so the official name, the dividend imputation? It's, it's something very credit? complex and, um, you know, I'm still recovering from it. So <laughs> why did it become such a big thing? Well, of course, the coalition was very successful at being able to paint it as a tax, which is why the questioner has called it a retirees tax because I think now that's become part of the lexicon. And it made many people afraid that Labor was coming to get the money of, um, well, retirees. And I think that's why Labor's now reconsidering its policies around this, Fran, isn't it? Because it worked. It scared lots of people. And many in the Labor Party now 
admit that it was a huge problem for them. Yeah, they misplayed it. They had a tin ear on it. They didn't realise it's like it snuck up on them, apparently. The campaign waging on social media around this issue and the fact that it was not just operating with those directly affected, which is some retirees and self-funded retirees, pretty small group of people, really, in the, in the scheme of things. But that fear campaign that was successfully generated by the coalition was really, really um, resonating with younger generations too who thought their parents were going to be unfairly affected But the point is, this tax is unaffordable. It is costing Australia billions of dollars every year. A lot of the money, as Dick Smith himself pointed out, he's a beneficiary of this tax. He said, why should I be getting a refund from the government on the dividends that that I receive? Um, It should be means tested. Labor made a mistake in not sort of capping it at some level and not putting some sort of sunset clause on it and not protecting those who were already at the lower end of the income scale getting some benefit from this tax. Labor misplayed it. The coalition launched an extremely successful, in fact, from Labor's point of view, politically deadly scare campaign. I love this last question from Andrew on Twitter. Can I put in a request to hear Fran and PK do commentary for the AFL Grand Final? Yes! (laughs) Yes, little known fact, fun fact. (laughs) Something we prepared earlier. Hang on, are they telling us it's time? I'm just going to... Before we wind up, because it is time, after the siren, I'm just going to let you all know that I actually started my career with a cadetship in ABC Sport. So I am oh, Fred, particularly I know well that. qualified to make an appearance at the grand final call. Loving it. I never knew that. How did I not know that? There you go. You're sneaky. Well, I certainly didn't, but I did grow up in Melbourne. I know a thing or two about AFL because, uh, look, you can't go through school in this state without uh, going to a few AFL games. Um, So, look, you know, ABC Grandstand, move over. All right, that's it from us. Thank you so much for your questions. And, of course, you can always ask more questions. Tweet us with the hashtag The Party Room or you can email thepartyroom at abc.net.au. You can also send a clip of yourself asking the question too so we can play it. Even better. We love those. We can actually hear your voice. Of course, we are a podcast, so we can do that. We have that ability. There's an inbuilt voice recorder app in your phone. You just search for voice recorder. Most phones have them, and then you can email the audio through. That's it from us. Great to be back. Remember, rate, review, subscribe. Let's keep us going, folks. Be watching Fran on Insiders, 9am Sunday morning on ABC TV. See you then, Fran, and then I'll see you again next week. Be there or be square. See you, PK. Bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.